want to welcome those of you who are joining us uh, by podcast today, those of you who are also brand new to City Church. Again, I want to just say welcome. Thanks so much for coming and, and joining with us. Every year around this time, we take a break from our norm of biblical expositional preaching, and we examine a few of the movies that were nominated for Best Picture at the Academy Awards. The two we've chosen this year are three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri, which I'm going to be speaking about today, and then Lady Bird, which I'm going to talk about next week. This is likely something that many of you have never heard of a church doing. And if you wonder why we would do something like this, I would encourage you to go to our app or to go to our website and download last week's sermon by uh, Dustin Krantz. I think he did a terrific job last week of explaining the reasoning behind and the value for. Yeah, please show him, show him your appreciation. I think he did a great job of explaining the reasoning behind and the value for a series like this. And I, I just want to offer this in support of Dustin's explanation last week. Uh, Craig Detweiler is a theologian, he's a filmmaker, he's a professor of communication at Pepperdine University, and in a book that he wrote called Into the Dark, he writes this. He says, the most timely, relevant, and haunting films resonate with the shaping story of Scripture, from the beauty of creation, through the tragedy of self-destruction, to the wonder of restoration. Now, here's what he's saying. He's saying that the gospel is the universal redemption story of which any given movie is a particular redemption story. So so every movie is patterning itself after the story of the gospel, whether the people behind the movie knew that or not when they were putting it together, which means this, that almost any movie can be a starting point for sharing the gospel. And so the purpose behind this series is not just to examine the movies themselves, but it's to show how they imitate the gospel story and to teach you how you can use culture to engage others in conversations about the gospel. Now, as I said, this morning I'm beginning with the movie Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri, and I'm just curious how many of you have seen this movie? Raise your hand if you've seen it. Okay, so a whole bunch of you guys have seen it. Let's acknowledge the obvious right from the start. The character in this movie knew how to cuss. And to be honest with you, because of my background, I have to tell you that the language other people use just doesn't really move my needle very much, but they used a few words in ways I didn't know that you could use them. Like, I might have thought that the word they were using was a noun, but they used it as a verb, an adjective, an adverb, and a noun, all in the same sentence. And, you know, as uncomfortable as that might have made you, I do want to make, I do just want to say this, that this movie plunges us into the darkest corners of humanity, corners that feel, at least on the surface, godless and hopeless. And language seems to be the only way the characters represented in this movie know how to cope with the pain of the reality that they experience. They're angry. And they're angry because they've all been deeply wounded in some way. And their language is intentional. It's a part of how they express their pain and hopelessness. And so to have had these characters say things like golly jeepers or Jiminy Crickets or fudge nuggets just wouldn't have fit the tone of the story. 
I think it was intentional. I think that's why it was there. The star of this movie was the two-time Academy Award winner, two-time Emmy Award winner, and one-time Tony Award winner, Frances McDormand, a terrific actress who some of you might remember from the movie Fargo or any number of other great movies that she's been in. Uh, She even won an Oscar a couple weeks ago for her phenomenal performance in in this movie. In this movie, McDormand plays a woman named Mildred who is seething with inner rage that's fueled in part by an abusive ex-husband, but mostly by the guilt and the pain that she feels over the death of her teenage daughter seven months ago, who was kidnapped, raped, set afire, and murdered. The local police haven't found a suspect or even unearthed a promising lead. And so to shame the local authorities into action, Mildred rents three billboards located on the outskirts of town and places a message on each of them, which reads, in order, raped while dying and still no arrests. How come, Chief Willoughby? And the three billboards enrage the town's residents, not because they don't sympathize with Mildred's loss, they do, but they resent the, ins- the insult to their beloved police chief, Chief Willoughby, who's played by Woody Harrelson. Willoughby is married with two little girls, and as it turns out, he's dying of pancreatic cancer, which only serves to heighten the town's anger toward Mildred and toward her billboards. The most enraged person in the whole town isn't Chief Willoughby himself. It's his deputy, Dixon, an ignorant, racist, violent, sometimes unintentionally funny cop, played masterfully, I I would add, by, by Sam Rockwell, who also won an Oscar for his performance in this movie. Dixon's rage toward Mildred and her billboards is exceeded only only by his loyalty to his dying chief. But the most sympathetic person to Mildred's cause turns out to be Chief Willoughby himself. He tries to reason with her by sharing his own genuine frustration about the absence of leads in this case, but Mildred is immovable. She refuses to back down, which sets the stage for the rest of the movie. I wonder if your experience watching this movie was anything like mine, for those of you who have seen it. At the beginning of the movie, you think this is going to be, you think it's going to be a a revenge film. Maybe a film about a determined woman who fights against all odds for justice. Maybe, Maybe you think it was going to be a whodunit kind of film. And you're pretty sure that you know at the beginning whose side you're on in this movie. But this movie's It's a kaleidoscope in which your emotions keep shifting with each scene. And the more that is revealed about each character, the less certain you feel about your alliances. And very few movies are capable of this and still convey a powerful message. But Martin McDonough, the writer and the director, did a masterful job of creating a movie that was as powerful the second time I watched it as it was the first time I watched it. I just want to make a few observations about how this movie not only spoke powerfully, I think, to our culture today, but I also want to make a few observations about how it gives us clues about how to best convey the gospel to our culture. Here's the first observation I want to make. 
Three billboards presents life and people authentically. It presents life and it presents people authentically. You know, there, was a, there was a clue to the kind of movie this was going to be in the first five minutes of the film. I don't know if you caught it. It was pretty subtle. You may remember Mildred walks into an office to, to rent these billboards, and the young man who's in charge is reading a book when she comes in. And if you look closely, you can see that it's a book called A Good Man is Hard to Find, written by Flannery O'Connor. Flannery, Flannery O'Connor was a devout practicing Catholic and a writer from the American South who is highly regarded by Christians who think seriously about literature. The writer and the director of Three Billboards, Martin McDonough, has been heavily influenced by her work. And if you've ever read any of her work, you can see her influence all over this movie. O'Connor wholeheartedly believed that the world in which we live is utterly broken and that people are, are utterly flawed so, so that no one is all good. And likewise, because we're all created in the image of God, no one is all bad. And so there's no easy answers in her books. There, there aren't any clear-cut heroes and villains. All of her characters are deeply flawed. And yet her books convey the way that grace can worm its way through the cracks in even deeply flawed characters. And, and you see that. You see that all over this movie. For instance, in the beginning of the movie, you're, you're on Mildred's side, right? I mean, you, can, you sympathize with her pain and, and her righteous anger. You even admire her gumption and, and courage and her refusal to back down. But as the movie goes on, you start to question Mildred. As it turns out, she's not just motivated by a righteous anger, she's been poisoned by her anger and her guilt. And as it turns out, she isn't just out for justice, she's out for revenge. Mildred can be cruel, and she even drags other people into the vortex of her rage in a way that hurts everyone, including a young black woman with whom Mildred works, who's put in jail only because of her association with Mildred. And by the way, this is just a note I wanted to make. I don't know if you noticed this or not, but in a movie with multiple brazenly illegal acts of violence, the only person who goes to jail in this movie is that young black woman for two marijuana cigarettes. Only person in the movie who goes to jail is a young black woman. There's this racist cop, Dixon. And again, at the beginning of the movie, it's very clear he's the bad guy. He's an alcoholic, he's a screw-up, maybe even a borderline sociopath. But just like with Mildred, as the movie wears on, you're going to find yourself changing your opinion about Dixon. You will even find yourself defending him uncomfortably. But you're going to find yourself defending him nonetheless, especially when you meet the woman that raised him, his mother. And I don't, I don't want to spoil... I don't want to spoil this movie for anyone who hasn't seen it. But let me tell you something. We've been telling you for three weeks to go see this movie. So I'm quoting the Bible now when I say, you snooze, you lose. 
I'm going to do this much. I, I will give you a spoiler alert. If you haven't seen the movie and you, and you want to see the movie, this would be a good time to put your fingers in your ears, all right? But here's what I want you to understand. This movie, even, even at the end of the movie, teases the possibility of a cleanly resolved outcome. But then like Flannery, all of Flannery O'Connor's books, it pulls back to concede that we live in a fallen world in which some atrocities go unpunished and some wounds will never heal, but that there's a window of forgiveness that remains to be opened. Here's, here's, what I, here's what I want to ask you. What are you hearing? What are you hearing in this? What, what clue does a movie like this point us to in how to make the gospel known in our culture? Well, I think if you, if you listen carefully, what, what this movie is telling us is that, is that our culture distrusts pat answers and perfect people. And by the way, rightfully so. One of the things that I love so much about the Bible, quite frankly, is that it gives us, like this movie, it gives us no pat answers. Nor does it nor does it whitewash the people that are in it. It asks us to live with tension. And so, for instance, the great king of Israel, King David, was both a man after God's own heart and an adulterer. Moses was a great leader who murdered a man in a fit of anger. Noah, the righteous man Noah, gets off the ark, plants a vineyard, and promptly gets drunk on his own wine. Seriously, what would you do if you'd been trapped on a boat for a year with your family and a bunch of animals? That seems pretty authentic to me. Life is too complex, this movie is saying. And by the way, it agree, the Bible agrees. Life is too complex for easy answers. And the Bible doesn't answer all of our questions. I have no easy answers for why God allows children to die before their parents sometimes. I have no idea why you haven't been able to get pregnant when you've prayed ceaselessly about that for years. I have no formulas to offer you to get God to answer your prayers. All I have to offer you is Jesus Christ. This movie is saying I think to to those of us who who want to live with kingdom principles and who want to influence our culture, it's saying drop the pat answers and drop the perfect persona. Drop all of the spiritual jargon that makes you sound so spiritual and that maybe even makes you think you're more spiritually mature than you are. All of that stuff sounds phony. It sounds ridiculous to people. I, uh, for instance, I, I, I have, I've told the staff on uh, numerous occasions, we've laughed about this, that I've had people, not anyone here, by the way, but I've had people in other places tell me that they were going to pray a hedge of protection around me. And that sounds really spiritual. But what, is a, what does a hedge of protection even mean? Why not an iron wall of protection? Why a hedge? A hedge isn't really that hard to get through. A good pair of hedge clippers and you're through. What does that even mean? Our culture doesn't trust pat answers, perfect people. So we've got to get real. Just because 
I believe in Christ doesn't mean that I'm a perfect person. I don't have all the answers. My life isn't all put together, and neither is yours. I think what this movie is saying is that letting people see that, dropping your guard, letting people into your brokenness in appropriate ways, may be the most compelling way to communicate the gospel to people in our culture. The Apostle Paul once wrote this to uh, a church in, in Corinth. He said, when I came to you, I didn't come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness, with great fear, trembling. My message and my preaching weren't with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. Do you hear what he's saying? He's not trying to put on any airs here. He's saying, I was weak, I was afraid, my knees were knocking. Now that doesn't sound like an uber-confident, powerful man of faith. Why does he say that? Because he wanted the Corinthians to believe in Christ, not him. Not his eloquence, not his strength, but Christ. Because Christ is the best thing about Christianity, not me. Not my answers. It's okay not to have all the answers. It's okay to be human. Because I think it's in the cracks of your brokenness that Christ shows through you the brightest. This movie does a tremendous job, really, of painting people and life in a very authentic light. And by the way, so does Christianity. We need to do a better job of that in this culture than a movie like Three Billboards outside of Ebbing, Missouri. Here's my second observation. Three Billboards mirrors the divisiveness of current American culture. And here's why I say that. We live in a day and age right now where all of us are so convinced all the time that we're right that we don't even question our own actions because we're so certain that what we're doing, we are doing out of righteousness. And you see this in this movie. Mildred, in her fight for justice, uh, she ends up bombing a police station with Molotov cocktails. And somehow she justifies this. This is all part of getting justice. Dixon, his grief when he hears that Chief Willoughby is died, leads him to go beat a guy up and then throw him out of a second-story window. In other words, you know, in other words, this movie, in this movie, these characters are saying, I've been so wronged by some injustice. I've been so wronged by being made to feel grief or guilt or pain that I can do anything or say anything in defense of my cause. Does that sound like America? today. Earlier this month, uh, just a couple of weeks ago, the CEO of Twitter, Jack Dorsey, uh, he wrote in a 13-part essay that Twitter is broken in many important ways and has contributed to the divisiveness in America. Listen, Listen to what he said. In fact, you can read along with me. 
He said, we didn't fully predict or understand the real-world negative consequences of our service. We have witnessed abuse, harassment, troll armies, manipulation through bots and human coordination, misinformation campaigns, and increasingly divisive echo chambers. We aren't proud of how people have taken advantage of our service or our inability to address it fast enough. See, we don't live in a culture anymore where we understand or where we know how to entertain other points of view. In the name of tolerance, we are intolerant. We isolate ourselves from people who think differently than we do. We distort other people's viewpoints. Extremism and hostility reign in American culture today. Everyone believes not just that they are right, but that they occupy the moral high ground. You see, in this movie, the the writer and director is mirroring back to us what we look like as a nation by using a small town and a few characters who look just like us and pointing us to the ultimate outcome of a nation in which people are so convinced of their rightness that they never question their actions. And the outcome, he says, is gore and mayhem and chaos. Again. Sound familiar? Those of you who are all caught up in politics, are you really so convinced that your party has all of the answers and that the other party has none of the answers? And if so, can I ask you, where do you find that in the Bible? Where do you find that the Republican Party or the Democrat Party... Where do you find that those parties, that politics is the hope of the world? Why are you so caught up in that? Fine, yes, it's important. Be interested, be involved in the political process. But the answers to the problems that face our culture are not found in either of the Democrat, excuse me, of either of the parties that people align themselves with. Those of you who are on Facebook or Twitter or other forms of social media, do your words there reflect kingdom principles? Are they gracious words to people who believe things that are different than you believe? I want you to listen to Proverbs 12. I'm going to read this to you from the Good News translation because I think it is just so beautifully clear. It doesn't mince any words. Here's Proverbs 12. Stupid people always think they're right. Wise people listen to advice. When a fool is annoyed, he quickly lets it be known. Smart people will ignore an insult. Thoughtless words can wound as deeply as any sword, but wisely spoken words can heal. There may never be another time in America in which living out the kingdom principles of loving your enemy and praying for those who persecute you will be as powerful as they are right now. Jesus once said, in fact, that that the world will know his disciples by our love, not by our rightness, not by our arguments, not by our politics or our persuasive speech or our eloquence or our wisdom, but by our love. And this movie is crying out for people who who specialize in love to rescue our culture instead of poisoning it 
poisoning it with more anger, more divisiveness, and more vitriol. We are a people who are to specialize in that kind of love. What do your words reflect? Are you able to just listen to someone who disagrees with you? Are you able to entertain their thoughts, their beliefs for a moment? Long enough to think about them? Final observation. Three Billboards declares in its own way that the grace of forgiveness is the hope of redemption. Where the, you know, this movie is so bleak for, for like three quarters of the movie. But when it be, where it begins to turn to hope is in a scene in which this racist, violent cop, Dixon, is reading a letter written to him by his now deceased chief, Willoughby. And here's what Willoughby says to him. He says, I think you've got the makings. This is in in the letter that he writes in. He says, I think you've got the makings of being a really good cop, Jason. And you know why? Because deep down, he says, you're a decent man. Wow. (laughs) I know you don't think I think that, but I do. But as long as you hold on to so much hate, I don't think you're ever going to become what I know you want to become, a detective. Because you know what you need to become a detective? And I know you're going to wince when I say this, but what you need to become a detective is love. Because through love comes calm, and through calm comes thought. And you need thought to detect stuff sometimes, Jason. It's kind of all you need. You don't even need a gun. And you definitely don't need hate. Hate never solved nothing. But calm did. And thought did. Try it. Try it just for a change. And it's at this point when Chief Willoughby, without any apparent reason for doing so, that we as an audience can see, tells Jason that he has the makings of a really good cop. It's at that moment that grace begins to worm its way through the cracks in this character's brokenness. Dixon begins to change. And not only Dixon, but the whole tone of the movie begins to change. If you think about it, what the chief was expecting was extending to Dixon, was a kind of grace. His words seem to us to be completely undeserved, but it's a symbol of grace. Unknown to Mildred, Dixon is reading this letter in the police station as she bombs it with Molotov cocktails. Dixon survives, but he's badly burned. He's taken to the hospital where he's put into a room with the man that he had beaten and thrown out of the second-story window. Dixon is so bandaged that you can't see his face, and so this man doesn't recognize him. But when Dixon realizes who he is sharing a room with, he confesses, and he apologizes. And in this very poignant scene, this man offers him a drink, pours him a glass of orange juice, and offers it to him as a symbol of his forgiveness. Months after that, Dixon is sitting in a bar drinking when he thinks he hears a man sitting in the booth right behind him. 
thinks he hears him confess to the murder of Mildred's daughter. Dixon provokes a a fight in which he gets beaten to a bloody pulp so that he can get this man's DNA to be tested for a match to the murderer's DNA. Mildred sees the beating that he took and she seems to forgive him in her own way. And then she confesses to him that she bombed the police station when he was in it. And it is in his own way, he forgives her. And then for the very first time in the movie, very first time, the only time, at the very end, the hardness of Mildred's face breaks into a smile. Many of the critics were offended by Dixon's redemption. They didn't like that part of the movie. In fact, that's what, why many people speculate that it didn't win an Academy Award for Best Picture. Listen to what one of the critics said. It's asking a lot of people to watch a story in which we root for a racist and abusive police officer in the name of his own redemption. But it's asking even more of the audience if Dixon himself does no actual work in the name of earning that redemption. What is it that that critic is is struggling with? Did you hear it? He said that Dixon did no work to earn that redemption. What he's stumbling over, what this critic is stumbling over is the idea of redemption. And it's a biblical idea, by the way. The biblical idea of redemption through grace. He wants Dixon to have to earn his redemption, to work for it, to pay for it. But it's not that that changes Dixon. It's grace that changes Dixon. Now again, this all happens in this movie without pointing us to the cross of Christ. I'm not trying to say that this is delivering a distinctly Christian message, but I am saying that you hear echoes of the gospel in this. The Apostle Paul once said, and I'm paraphrasing paraphrasing here when when, when when I read this, but or when I say this, but he said one time that the hardest thing for people to accept about the gospel is the offense of the cross. And by that, what he means was that it offends people when you tell them that first, there's nothing that any of us can do to earn our own forgiveness, but also second, that people like Dixon, a racist, violent cop, can receive forgiveness through Christ's sacrifice and be redeemed. This is the good news of the gospel. And it's what what differentiates the gospel from every other religion. If you think about it, religion is always good news to the good person. Religion says, look, if you're good, you can earn your way to heaven. But it offers nothing to spiritual losers like Dixon and like me. Religion offers no hope to us. But the gospel is good news to the Dixons of the world. John once wrote, this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. This is the hope of redemption, grace through forgiveness. Just think about it. Think about the words that I've been using. Throughout this talk, love, forgiveness, 
grace, justice, redemption? If you didn't know better, you'd think we were talking about the gospel, not a movie. And oh, by the way, early in the movie, Mildred asks, she says, when will the billboards go up? And you know what the answer was? Any of you remember? Easter Sunday. And what happens on that Easter Sunday begins a series of events that lead to a resurrection of sorts, of sorts, where a racist, violent cop and a small town in Ebbing, Missouri. It's the power of the gospel. It's the grace of the gospel that changes people. Not earning redemption, not working for redemption, not hatred. It's the grace of the gospel expressed through the love of Jesus Christ on a cross in Calvary that is the hope of humanity and the hope of our culture too. Would you pray with me? It is a tribute to your creation and to your wisdom, God, that every story, every movie imitates in some way the redemption story of the gospel. Lord, give us as, as, as a church ears to hear, eyes to see. Take a movie like this, Lord, and use it in our lives to teach us how to communicate with our culture the glorious news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The glorious news that says that God saved even me. Not that, not that I was such a good person, but that God even saved a person like me through Jesus Christ's death on the cross and his resurrection. Or for those who are here today who may never have heard that news before that, that God wants to give them forgiveness and eternal life. Not earn it, but he wants to give it to them. Lord, today in this moment, in the privacy of their seat and their heart, Lord, would you bring them to a place where they accept this gift that you have given to them in the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for the power of grace and that it is the hope of redemption. And it is in your name, Lord Jesus Christ, that we pray.